And uh, if you take up a Bible that should be in front of you, we're going to read from the book of Esther, and we're going to read chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Esther. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes, who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor of his gl- and glory of his mi- majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangs of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant, in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, Memhan, Bizpha, Bona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Setha, and Carcass, to bring before him Queen Vashti, wearing her royal crown, in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious and burned with anger. Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to the king. Kashina, Shetha, Admartha, Tashish, Meresh, Masina, Memkan, the seven nobles of Persia and Media who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. According to law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Mamakin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles, Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, and so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end to disrespect, of disrespect and discord. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media which cannot be repealed, 
that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice, so the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to, its, to each people in its own language, proclaiming in each people's tongue that every man should be ruler over his own household. Later, when the anger of King Xerxes had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful girls into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the girl who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. Neither was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin, named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This girl, who was also known as Esther, was lovely in form and features, and Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many girls were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Hegai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who had charge of the harem. The girl pleased him and won his favour. Immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven maids selected from the king's palace and moved her and her maids into the best palace in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked to and fro near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a girl's turn came to go in to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women, six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shaashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the girl Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihel, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the, uh, of the harem, suggested. And Esther won favour of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any other woman, and she won his favour and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. 
When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions, as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were hanged on gallows. All this was recorded in the book of the Annals in the presence of the king. This is God's word. Father, we ask that you would help me so to open this up, that we would hear and respond rightly to this, your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, come with me to the most powerful man in the world, at the apex of the greatest empire in the world. Verse 1. This is what happened. Let me tell you a story, a true story. During the time of Xerxes, otherwise known as Ahasuerus, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. And we're going to hear a terrific story. It's got money, sex, power, genocide, hatred, violence, love, loyalty, surprises, flukes, rescue. It's a terrific story. But as we launch in, the writer says to us at the beginning, I want to tell you that this story concerns the time of when Xerxes ruled for 127 provinces from India to Kush, that is, uh, roughly speaking, Sudan. And he's, he, he's saying, I want to tell you a story about the empire. It's actually the Persian empire, or the Medo-Persian empire, uh, in the 6th century before Christ. But in some ways, it doesn't much matter what empire it is, and I think for the purposes of the story, we could just call it the empire of the world. And I want, as we, as we go through chapter 1, to notice the number of characteristics of this empire. And the first is that it is inescapable. You see these 127 provinces. The, the Persian Empire was huge. It covered more or less what is now northwestern India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Iran, Iraq, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, Turkey, northern Greece, Egypt, Libya, Eritrea, Ethiopia, and northern Sudan. I'd like to remind you a little bit about that, like that comment at the beginning of the King's speech. Do you remember it on the screen? It is 1925. King George V reigns over a quarter of the world's population. And if you're British like me, you think with a glow of pride of the empire in which the sun never set. Not that there's any of it left now. But in some ways, Xerxes' empire was even bigger because you couldn't travel faster than by horseback. And if you lived in this empire, it was inescapable. There's no way you could get out. It was the empire of the world for just about everybody who, who was, 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 was in it. Inescapable. And then verse 2, at that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. Now, the citadel is something like the Kremlin. It, it, in our terms here, if you took 
Buckingham Palace, the Houses of Parliament, the High Court of Justice, Fleet Street, the BBC. You put all of that together somewhere out maybe in Slough, um, just sort of outside the city and put walls around it. That's the citadel. So it's not where people live. It's the, it's the center of government. And that's where he reigned, one of the four Persian capitals. And he reigned there. And in the third year of his reign, 483 uh, BC, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. That's all the, the powerful people all through the empire. And the, particularly the military leaders, do you see verse 3? the princes, the nobles. Now, there was probably a reason for this. He was about to launch what turned out to be a a catastrophically unsuccessful invasion of Greece. And I guess the first readers of the book of Esther would have known that. But he wanted everybody, he wanted all the military leaders of his empire to to back him. And so he had this tremendous six-month or so display of his wealth, verse uh, 4. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth. And I want us to notice if his empire was inescapable, there's nowhere else to live for most people, it's also very visible and impressive. He displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom, the splendor and the glory of his majesty. And then at the end, verse 5, he had a one-week party for the staff. That's what verse 5 is. The king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel. That's all the staff, the groundsmen, the cleaners, as well as the permanent secretaries. All the staff. It was a party for the staff to thank them, uh, I I guess, for this uh, six-month exhibition that they'd had. And if his empire is inescapable and you've got to live there, and it's visible and impressive, I want us to notice that it is also desirable. Now, here's the thing. As we read the description that follows in the next few verses, and we feel the awe at this visible majesty and wealth, we need to remember that in the Persian Empire there is no such thing as a free party. And what this is saying is not just, look at me and how rich I am. What the Persian emperor is saying, look at me and how rich I am, and that means that if you throw in your lot with me, if you share my values, if you are loyal to me, you too can stand to get some of this. You can be a part of this. So feel this in verse uh, 6. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. And you sense the awe at these things that you would never find in Ikea. (laughs) It is just astonishing. The only other description like it in the Bible is the description of the tabernacle and the temple. It's a majestic place, and it's a religious place, really, because it demands your loyalty. Couches of gold and silver, a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, costly stones. And, and you see verse 7 and 8, plenty of wine, each in, in individually handmade goblets, 
And, and there's plenty of it. It's abundant because the king is so generous, his liberality, verse 7. And you can have as much as you like, verse 8. So if you will throw in your lot with this inescapable, visible, desirable empire, you can be a part of this. You can get some of this. This is a fine, magnificent, generous emperor. So if his empire, and this is the empire, friends, that you and I live in, not the Persian empire, but the empire of the world, the empire in which there is a value system, in which an empire which is inescapable, we can't live anywhere else for the moment, an empire which is visible, you can see, it's, it's sensory, sensual, you can see, hear, taste, touch, the stuff that matters. And it's desirable. And if you and I throw in our lot with that value system, you and I too can share in that. What's the fourth characteristic? Inescapable, visible, desirable, well, presumably invincible. So let's, this is where the story gets really interesting. Verse 9, we discover that the women have a separate banquet. We don't know quite why, but presumably that was the custom. And that there's a queen. And then in verse 10, on the seventh day, the last day of this final feast, King Xerxes was, I love that expression, in high spirits from wine. When I was younger, Harold Wilson was prime minister, and he had a chancellor of the exchequer called George Brown, who had a bit of a problem with drink. And in those days, the press were much more respectful, so they would say, the chancellor of the exchequer, tired and emotional spoke at a press conference. He just meant he'd had one or maybe more than one too many. Tired, it was Xerxes was tired and emotional. And he decides it's time for a whiff of sex as well as the alcohol and the display of power. And so he commanded, and, and, and what follows is the most marvellously funny description. He commanded the seven to indicate his power, eunuchs, to, to highlight what they hadn't got and he had, who served him, and they're all named there. And he said, you seven, you go and bring Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown to display her beauty. I want everybody to know that my chick is prettier than theirs. You've seen my inanimate possessions. Now I want you to see someone who is just another one of my possessions. She is a sex object. That's all she is. And so they go, verse 12, and they deliver the king's command, and Queen Vashti refused to come. Isn't that marvellous? What happens when the most powerful man at the world, uh, in the world, at the harbour of the most visible, impressive empire in the world, comes face to face with the will of a woman? <laughs> And Queen Vashti says no. And you can imagine these poor seven eunuchs having to come back into the, the banqueting hall and coming up to the, the king and saying, you know, whispering. And the murmuring, you know, just begin, people begin to tweet, you know, hashtag Vashti said no. <laughs> and the king is absolutely livid. And I think the point is this, that, that powerful as he is, reigning in over 127 provinces from India to Kush, he cannot command the will of another human being. 
Of course, he could bring her in chains. That would be easy, just send the soldiers to get her. But he wants to show that his will is dominant over her will. He wants her to come voluntarily in obedience to his will. And she will not come. That he cannot do. And what follows is the most marvellous satire on the invincibility or otherwise of the most powerful representative of the empire of the world. It's, it's a little bit like George Orwell in Animal Farm. Satire has always been a tremendous instrument to mock human power. We'll go through it quickly, but just feel the humour here. Verse 13, it's customary for the king to consult experts. And one of the things about Xerxes, this powerful man, is that in the whole book he never makes a single decision for himself. One of the ironies of the book. So he consults these experts, these wise men, these, these political um, counsellors. They understood the times. They really got it. They, 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 and they're closest to the king. And they're all named with their pompous Persian names, the seven nobles of Persian media. These are the ones who have special access, verse 14. They direct report to the most powerful man in the world. And so he says, according to law, tyrants have always liked to have this pretense of legality. What must be done to Queen Vashti? She's not obeyed the command. Now, it's a slightly awkward moment when a fragile ego like that, in whom is vested uh, all power, is angry and publicly embarrassed. So, good on you, Memukan. Memokan comes up with a really good answer, and he says, he says, don't take it personally, your majesty, verse 16. You know, what Queen Vashti has done is not just against you, it's against all the nobles and the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes, from India to Kush. Because the queen's conduct will become known. We mustn't let this, let this become publicly known. That would be a disaster. That King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti and she wouldn't come. And even today... Verse 18, the nobility, already there's going to be trouble at home. Already there's going to be wives, countesses and, and, and duchesses and, and, and so on. All these nobles' wives, they're going to say, well, the queen didn't do what the king said, so you can't expect me to. There's going to be trouble everywhere. I mean, just the whole empire is going to be thrown by this challenge to the emperor's power. So, here's what we should do, your majesty, verse 19. Issue a decree, always, always another law. You get this quite often in the book, although some of them are darker than this one. Let it be written in the laws of Persia and media, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is never... Now, the first thing about this law is we must tell Vashti that she mustn't do what she's just refused to do. She said she wouldn't come into the presence of the king, so we say, well, you can't come into the presence of the king. Terrific law. Well done, Memokan. <laughs> Then give her royal position to someone else who's better than she, which means more, more pliant and pliable. And then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his realm, his vast realm, it's literally all his realm, and it is vast. You can imagine, that you can just see the flattery here. Your majesty, you rule over 127 provinces from India to Kush. And, and when everybody knows, we, we don't want anyone to know that Queen Vashti has disobeyed you. But let's proclaim a decree so that the whole empire knows. Well done, Memokan. Bright counsellor, you understand the times. 
Then all the women will respect their husbands, from the least to the greatest, and everything will be fine. And the king and his nobles said, well done, give him a knighthood, verse 21. And so these dispatches go all through the empire, not for the last time in the book, all in the right languages, saying, every man shall be ruler over his own household. Isn't it marvellous? I mean, it's marvellously unenforceable, isn't it? You can imagine knock-knock at some door at some remote little rural hut in North, you know, in Afghanistan. Um, uh, who, who, hello, who are you? We're the male headship enforcement police. <laughs> we just want to make sure that your wife hasn't disobeyed you. It's a marvellous parody, isn't it? And so you get to the end of chapter one and you say to yourself, you say to yourself, the empire of the world, the power structures that you and I live in, in the workplace tomorrow, the workplace, the law firm, the company that demands your body and soul, the difficult boss behaving badly, family relationships where perhaps parents have the money and the power and are behaving in an ungodly way. And you and I struggle. Think of the primary school age child of friends of ours, instructed by her teacher to write down, Allah is great. And this young primary school girl, who had a certain spark to her, said, I don't believe that. I'm not going to write that. And the teacher stood over and said, you write that. So she wrote it, and then she wrote on the back, I don't believe this. <laughs> but how do, you, how do you cope if you're a Christian man or woman in a world in which power is held by other people? And sometimes you and I are under power. And chapter one of the book of Esther, the book's going to get a lot darker before we get to the end. But it invites us to see that in the old story, this emperor has no clothes. That the pretensions of human power the pretensions of the companies some of us work for, the pretensions of the culture, the pretensions of the media, the pretensions of the world value system in which we live are empty. And we're invited to laugh at them, just as we laugh at Xerxes here. But the story goes on. If chapter 1 gives us this portrait of power that is inescapable, Visible, desirable, but maybe not invincible. Chapter 2 shifts our focus from power to weakness. There's still humor there, but there's a picture of weakness in chapter 2. So later, we don't know how much later, King Xerxes sobers down, verse 1, and he remembers Vashti and what she had done and what he decreed about her. Poor old Xerxes, he doesn't quite know what he's done when he's drunk. And maybe he regrets it. And his personal attendants, his personal servants say, now, I don't think the problem is that he is, if I can put it bluntly, sex-starved. He still has a harem. I don't think he's been sleeping on his own. But it's a little bit like the French president, isn't it? You know, when the French president gets rid of one girlfriend for a younger one and then a younger one. The question is still raised, who's going to be first lady? Who are you going to take when you visit the White House? You know, we need somebody who's going to be the official number one girl. That seems to be the, the sense there. So they said, well, your majesty, um, 
the harem's getting a bit tired and old, so why don't we have this empire-wide beauty contest? And it's not really a contest, because if you're pretty and you're a virgin, you're entered for it, verse 2. But of course, it's an utterly heartless system, but that's not the point. The writer is, you know, lots of stuff happens in Esther that's good, bad, and indifferent. And we're not really invited to, to worry too much about the morality. That's not the point of the story. But here's how the empire works. Uh, so we'll have commissioners, verse 3, going into all the provinces, and they'll bring these beautiful girls into the harem. And then the, the, the system is described. They're going to be put into the care of uh, the king's eunuch who's in charge of the virgin section of the harem, and they're going to be beautified. And uh, as somebody chuckled, this advice appealed to the king. Yes, well, it would, wouldn't it? <laughs> uh, but this is how the empire works. This is an empire in which other people exist for the sake of those in power. It's, a, it's, a, it's an empire in which beautiful young women become sex objects and boys become eunuchs. It's not particularly sexist. I was reading one woman commentator who pointed out all these boys becoming eunuchs, you could argue that the girls have the better deal, she said. But neither of them have a very good deal, do they? It's a, it's a value system in which other people exist for me. And if I've got power, I will make them serve my interests. That's the world in which we live as well, in its essentials. And then in verses 5, 6, 7, this story is connected with the rest of the Bible. There was in the citadel of Susa a Jew. A Jew, a man whose home is Judah the origin of the word Jew, of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai. And we're given his genealogy. We'll come back to that next week because it's important. But notice for the moment, verse 6, he's been carried into exile. He is an exile. He is living somewhere which is not his home. And the New Testament repeatedly describes Christian people as men and women living in exile, living in the empire of the world, living in a place which is not our home, living in a place in which we will sometimes find ourselves vulnerable and weak. And Mordecai is one of those. And then we learn, verse 7, that he has a younger cousin named Hadassah, her Hebrew name. And she was an orphan, verse 7, and she was very pretty, and Mordecai has been her guardian and has brought her up as his daughter. And so we're introduced to Mordecai and Esther, who are two insignificant people. They have no power. They are exiles. Esther has two names, a Hebrew name and a Persian name, Hadassah and Esther, torn between two kinds of identity, weak and vulnerable. And verse 8, the king's order has been proclaimed and lots of girls are brought into this, the citadel, to the, to the harem. They're put under the care of Haggai and surprise, surprise, so, does their, so is Esther. She's very pretty, she has a good figure. In she comes to the, to, to, to the, to the harem. And she pleases him. And we're not, incidentally, um, scholars have a happy time thinking, was Esther pious and reluctant to come? Or was she excited and keen at the, the, the harem lottery that she might become Queen of Persia? We have no idea. And the writer isn't in the least bit interested in whether or not she was being godly or ungodly at this point. It just happens. 
It just happens. And that's really not the point of the story. But in she comes to the harem. And we have this this wait. But notice verse 10. She's not revealed her nationality and her family background, and Mordecai has told her not to. Now, again, I don't know whether she should have been gutsy and, 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 and been upfront about it, or whether she was wise. I've really no idea. The, the storyteller doesn't tell us. But you do learn from verse 10 that to belong to God's people, in our terms, to be a man or woman in Christ, in those days to be a Jew, to be one of God's people is, is, is just dangerous in some way. There's this atmosphere of fear. Mordecai feels he need to say, needs to say to her, keep quiet, don't tell them. Don't tell them you're one of God's people. Don't tell them you're, you're a Jew. There's something vulnerable and scary about that. And Mordecai does his best to keep an eye on her, verse 11. And then verse 12, the girls queue up in this dreadful, uh, oppressive system. They queue up for their one night with the king. They have 12 months of beauty treatments. Oh, when you read commentaries on the book of Esther, you get the most wild applications. Here's my suggestion. The, 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 what Christians should learn from the book of Esther is to buy shares in cosmetics. I mean, you'd want to in those days, wouldn't you? You know, you've got all the, every pretty girl in the whole empire is in there, and they're having 12 years, sorry, 12 months of, of continuous beauty treatment. But of course, it's a dreadful um, system. Verse 13, when the, the girl's turn comes, verse 14, in the evening she goes in to the king, and in the morning she goes back, no longer a virgin, now to the concubines part of the harem. She goes in by turn, and she will never go back unless she is called, verse 14, by name. It is a dreadful system, but that's not the point. And then Esther's turn comes. And just that reminder in verse 15 that she's the daughter of um, Mordecai's uncle, Abihail. And her turn comes. And uh, she goes in. She's won favor for some reason. She seems to be a sweet, pretty compliant, lovely, easy girl. And notice how the, 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 the camera slows in verse 16. She's taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. What a lot is going to hinge on this one strange, immoral night of sex. What a lot is going to hinge on this. The camera just slows down and says, I need to tell you the year. It's now four years after Vashti was dismissed. That was the third year. This is the seventh year. I want to tell you the month. And it's almost as though that the director shows this pretty girl walking from the harem into the palace slowly, and you're wondering, now what is going to happen? In verse 17, the king is attracted to Esther. Let's not be sentimental about this. He doesn't fall in love with her. She's pretty, and she pleases him in bed. It's as simple as that. She's pretty, and she pleases him in bed. And he has the best night he's had for a long time. That's how it is. And he decides that she's going to be made queen. And he puts a royal crown on her head, and he makes her queen instead of Vashti. 
And we say, hooray, one of God's people has been made queen. And we shouldn't say hooray at all. The, the crown on Esther's head doesn't mean any more than the crown on Vashti's head had meant. You wouldn't congratulate a 16th century girl on, on being enga- getting engaged to Henry VIII. Well done, Anne Boleyn. Wish I could get ahead like you. Sorry. That wasn't wasn't very good. Um, But nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. And then the last few verses, we'll come back to these next week, but the last few verses, Mordecai gets to hear of an assassination plot against Xerxes, which was no joke. He was assassinated later, less than 20 years later. But this was a failed one. Mordecai gets to hear of it. Mordecai reports it. And Mordecai gets no reward. The Persian kings prided themselves on rewarding loyal supporters. But for some reason he forgets. And Mordecai has become the king's saviour. But nobody knows. And we're going to leave the story there. And it's a little frustrating. Because we we really want to read the whole story. I'd love to say to you, don't read on. Uh, just come back next week, but you probably will read on because it's a cracking story and it's a true story and it is in, in a deep sense our story. But just as we pause there, if you're not a believer and you think this world can entirely be accounted for by visible causes and visible effects and visible power and visible agency, the story so far just invites you to think again and to face the possibility that there just possibly might be an invisible hand behind the visible causes. And when you hear the story of a a baby brought up by poor parents in an insignificant place who is neither a king nor an emperor and who is weak and who is finally crucified, this story says to you, Just possibly that might be the story that counts. And if you are a Christian believer, as I'm I'm sure many, if not most of us are, and you and I struggle in the empire of the world under powers over which we have no control, this story says to us, next time we struggle under powers, visible, impressive powers that invite us to join in their value system, laugh at them. Laugh at them as we laugh at Xerxes and say, you have no idea. You think you're in control. You're really not. And if you and I belong to the weak man, Jesus of Nazareth, you and I are under the authority and in the care of the one man in human history who has the authority to move and turn the will of another human being for their good. Let me stop there and pray. Father, thank you for this story. Thank you above all for the story of the Lord Jesus, our Saviour. And we pray that we would neither be seduced nor frightened by the power pretensions of the world, but we might be confident to be followers of the weak Jesus. 
in his name. Amen.